Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome on and all to the Storybox podcast, the place to be if you are a lover of stories. My name is Jay Phantom, former real estate agent now living my purpose, sharing amazing stories from people all over the world. I'm grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Have you ever wanted to learn something really, really fast or master the art of business, face your fears, pursue your ambitions and become the hero you are destined to be? Well, my friends, welcome back to Storybox Podcast. And today have I got an episode and story for you. My next guest is none other than Josh Kaufman, the world-renowned and best-selling author of three amazing books. First one, The Personal MBA. Master the Art of Business, The First 20 Hours, How to Fight a Hydra. And this guy, my goodness, we had such an amazing conversation. We had to do it uh, a two-parter as well. So I've combined two episodes into one for you because there's so much amazing content in this episode that I know you guys are not going to want to put it down. But if you don't know who Josh Kaufman is, Josh's, Josh's research focuses on business, entrepreneurship, skill acquisition, productivity, creativity, applied psychology, and practical wisdom. Now, all that is in this episode. There's a lot to unpack, but I guarantee you, you're not going to want to click out of it. You're going to want to continue to um, soak up all this man's incredible wisdom. Josh's unique multidisciplinary approach to business mastery and rapid skill acquisition has helped millions of readers around the world learn essential concepts and skills on their own terms. Josh has been featured as the number one best-selling author in business and money as ranked by Amazon, and his books have sold well over now a million copies worldwide. Josh's TED Talk on the first 20 hours is one of the one of the top 25 most viewed TED Talks published to date with over 22 plus million views on YouTube. Josh's research has been featured on the New York Times, the BBC, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Fortune, Forbes, Time, Business Week, Wired, Fast Company, Financial Times, Harvard Business, and so, so many more. Josh has, has been a featured speaker at Aspen Idea Festival, Stanford University, IBM, Google, just to name a few. And I know you guys are going to love this episode. So with that being said, if you do get something from this, please share it around to your friends and anyone that you know. Take a screenshot, uh, put it up on social media, tag the story box, tag Josh uh, if you can. 
and let us know what you think of it. Also, please leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to building this incredible community and, and inspiring so many more people to know their worth and to become better in their lives. So you guys know what time it is. I've spoken too much, but it's time to buy the Hydra, metaphorically speaking, and dive into the story box today and hear the awesome story of Josh Kaufman. Jay, so much. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's uh, it's great to hang out with you today. Seriously, man, it's an absolute honor to to have you. And like I like I said to you before, I watched probably about the first one or two minutes of your TED talk and didn't want to finish because I just had to reach out to you and and like ask you questions for myself. Um, I didn't want to be spoiled, if that makes sense, to anyone that is sure. listening. Um, before we dive into all those kinds of questions, I have one question that I love asking people to start off with, and that is, what does success look like to you? So success for me is working on projects that are interesting with people that I enjoy and I, I want to, to work with or I choose to work with, and then doing that in a way that helps me care for myself and care for my family. Um, so we'll, we'll get into a, a lot of the backstory. Um, but I, uh, I have a background working for massive companies and, uh, made a very deliberate decision about what, 12 years ago to, uh, to do my own thing. And, and part of the motivating focus was that is I wanted to spend more time with my family and I wanted to do cool projects with people that I choose and, uh, 12 years in so far, so good. Mm. So when was that moment? Was it like a catalyst moment that you sort of realized like what actually happened to make you realize that, okay, hang on a minute. I, I want to do my own thing. I want to spend more time with my family. Were you fearful as well when you actually decided to take that leap? Yeah, I, I remember the moment vividly. Uh, this is not an exaggeration. I was sitting in a meeting to prepare for a meeting, to prepare for a meeting, to prepare for a meeting. And I just, I looked at what the next 20 or 30 years of my life would be. And it only got worse from there uh, in, in terms of where I would be spending the vast majority of my focus, energy, uh, time, and effort. And, um, and also, you know, looking a little bit into the future, I was, I was in my early 20s at the time. And I saw people who had the job that if, if I did well and got a promotion, I saw what their life would look like. And a lot of times it was kissing their kids on the forehead before they woke up on their way out the door to work and kissing their kids on the forehead when they got home um, at 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And I decided that if I didn't change something, that is what I could expect. Um, the, the, the structure of the environment of working in a large company um, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people relying on you. There's a lot of time dependent processes. And if you're the person in charge, um, when you work for a large company, if there's a trade-off between what the business needs to get done on a timeline and what you need on an individual level, um, for better or worse, the people who succeed in that environment are the ones who choose to make the trade-off in favor of the company time and time again. And I decided that that's not something that I wanted for me. There are many ways to succeed in this world. 
Um, and I, I didn't at that point know exactly what I was going to do. I just knew that if I stayed on that path, I was not going to be happy with the end result of it. Mm. So how did you actually leave that place? Was it sort of like this instantaneous, uh, I'm going to start writing books. Did you actually have a plan or was it just, I'm going to leave and see where it takes me? Yeah, no, I, I had a bunch of side projects going on at the same time. Mm. And so there was always a part of me is like, I think at some point in the future, I'm going to want to do my own thing. I don't know what that is yet, but, uh, but I was looking for it. I had a couple of very small service-based businesses uh, growing up in high school and early college. And that gave me a little bit of, of service consulting, advising um, experience. And that was really helpful. So the personal MBA came about, uh, which was the, the first book that I, I ended up uh, writing. That came about as, as one of these side projects. Oh, wow. I uh, got my start in the corporate world um, through ex- essentially an internship program. Mm. And everybody around me that I was going to be working with had graduated from an MBA program, uh, oftentimes a top 15 MBA program. Mm. And for me, not having that experience, it's a little intimidating. Like, I want to go into this job. I want to do good, do good work, hold my own in meetings, um, all of that. And so the personal MBA started as a project of, I didn't need to quit my job, go back to school. Um, I just wanted to learn all of the things that will hopefully, theoretically, make you a successful business person. And so as a side project, I had my day job, and then I was reading and researching on the side and found um, a lot of the ideas that were most useful came up over and over and over again. Mm. So I, I read over the course of the project, um, I really wish I would have kept an exact count, um, easily over a thousand business books. Wow. And when you read that much, you, just, you see the same ideas come up over and over and over again. It's like, okay, there's a, there's a core of knowledge here that's very valuable, very important and very beneficial. Wouldn't it be great for people learning business to just learn that first? And you know, when when you have a solid scaffold of principles to work from, mm. everything else becomes easier to understand or easier to do. And so the personal MBA evolved from this this huge research project into what is that core set of business principles that everybody should know? What are the things that work um, at the largest companies in the world and at the smallest companies in the world, you know, solo person just getting started. And so the first edition of the personal MBA came out in uh, very late 2010 and, uh, and now it's 2020. And so the, the latest edition, the 10th anniversary edition of the personal MBA just came out. It's the third edition of the book. And, um, the theory was, okay, you put, put all of these fundamental principles in one place. This is a great introduction to business, no matter who you are or what you do. That's the theory. Um, it's wonderful when things that work in theory actually work in practice because the book has done very well. So um, we just got confirmation from the publisher that uh, the personal MBA has sold 900,000 copies worldwide. Wow. And the the whole purpose of the 10th anniversary edition is to 
set the book up to be a valuable resource for the coming decade. So hopefully in, in 2030, 2040, it is still the best introduction of core business principles that exists. Mm, that's incredible, man. Congratulations on, on the huge, huge achievement. Um, what I'm curious about is master the art of business. Now, why, why did you call it mastery? And why did you include mastery in, in an art in the same thing as business? Is, yeah. there, is there such a thing as actually mastering business or like, cause we look at all the high profile business people, right? And we would class them as, you know, masters in their field. But what does that actually mean? Is there like an art form to it or, or what, what do you mean by how to master the art of business? Yeah. So, so the art goes back to, there are certain things in business that you can do too much of or too little of. And so this is an idea that goes all the way back, believe it or not, to Aristotle, mm. uh, who, who said something along the lines of virtue is the mean between two extremes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, if think of, um, think of something like courage, right? So courage is something that we can all aspire to. Um, the absence of courage is cowardice. That's a bad thing, something to be avoided. The polar opposite, so having way, 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 way too much, is hubris, getting into situations that you should not be in Mm. because you are so overconfident in your abilities or your abilities to make a difference in this particular area. So you're trying to shoot for the middle point between those two extremes. I think a lot of the art in business is understanding these fundamental principles, which really do govern what businesses are, how they work, how, what it means to do it well. Mm. And then finding that middle point of focusing enough on certain things, but not too much or too little. And what you see over and over again with successful business people is A, they pay an enormous amount of attention to these fundamental concepts because they really are the definition of what it means to, to, to be successful and do business well. But then they're also very perceptive and willing to experiment to find that middle point between too much and not enough. Mm. And so I, I think this is this makes to me business one of the most fascinating areas of human existence because it's so multidisciplinary and it's so important, you know, to mm. to the function of our society, to to our day to day lives. Um, doing business well means adding very real value to the world. And in doing so, supporting yourself and, and your loved ones. There's a virtuous cycle there that's very unique. And so, yeah, I like to, I like to think about business is something that you can master in the sense of understanding what's important and having knowledge and experience to do it well. And then the art is finding that middle point between an not enough and, and too much. I like that, man, because business in, in the economic sense sort of helps run the country. I mean, small business does that. And when we look at who's actually running the company and who's like uh, the owner or the founder and everything like that, you've got to look at their life and actually 
what they do with their life because that also translates to how they run their business. Like mm-hmm. values, if they actually are balanced, because if they're not balanced, then I highly doubt that their business is actually going to be balanced either. Uh, right. it's sort of like, you know, for a small business especially, because that's pretty much, if it's just you and some other employee, then you've got to learn how to manage you first, then your employee, then the business. And it's, yep. I like how you mentioned the balance there. I think that's a very important lesson and I don't really think I've heard it described in the sense of, of business that way, but it's so cool. Um, yeah. Have you it's, noticed? So you go. Go ahead. So I, I think in, in terms, one of the thing, a tangible thing we can think about, um, which is very, very timely right now, is the idea of resilience. Mm. And so there's a certain amount of having additional resources, having insurance, having multiple lines of business, all of those things that can help when unexpected things happen and unexpected things happen often can help us really weather the storm in important ways. And so you can think of resilience as being this middle point, because if you're not resilient enough, so think, you know, to financial market crashes, like the the Great Recession of 2008, all of these banks were had borrowed a bunch of money and it had taken effectively insurance mm. from each other. And then when one domino falls, they all fall. So that's a lack of, of resilience, too much risk, not enough planning ahead. But then there's there's an opposite extreme of that too, of you know, if if you're sitting on millions or billions of dollars in cash in the bank. Those are resources that can be put into investing in the business, making new products, hiring more staff, improving the experience. So, so there's, there's a middle point between not being prepared enough and being overprepared for everything. And there are costs in both ways. Mm. And so I think you, what we're seeing a, lo- a lot now, particularly with, with the current global situation, uh, pandemic, um, et cetera, is that the companies that are doing well right now are the ones that have navigated that trade-off in a very skillful way. Um, they're, they're not over-leveraged. Um, they have, they're not overstaffed because staffing is usually the, the most costly part of the business. Mm. Um, and then, you know, if, if things go sideways, as they have uh, this, this past year, that can be a very real liability. Mm. And they're prepared enough that as new opportunities have arisen out of the changing environment around us, they have the money and the, the personnel and the capacity to change their business operations to take advantage of the new environment. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, that's, that's one of those things that you can always look at your, yourself or your business operations and say, am I prepared to weather changes unexpected changes if they come, when they come? And am I taking full advantage of the opportunities that are in front of us right now? Mm. And how you balance that trade-off will play a very large part in your success over a very long period of time. Kind of like forecasting in a a sense, but also being prepared. Um, As best you can, like, if you go through a, a, a period, say, for example, like you mentioned, the Great Depression of 2008 and what happened with that, we're actually, at the moment, we are behind schedule for 
an actual depression again. <laughs> um, that's what I've heard at least, but you know, you see those market trends and everything that's happening around in the world at the moment and, and the economy is doing the best it possibly can to stay afloat during the time. I see business people all the time, like the most resilient business owners that I associate myself with and have seen are the ones that run cafes and restaurants, like especially during this period right mm-hmm. now, because they they don't know without customers, they're not going to be able to employ staff members to go food and, and, and what, what have you. But I like how you mentioned the resilience of it. And what I want to ask you now, Josh, is this idea of, of going into business for yourself. And is it something that anyone can learn or are you actually born to be in business, if that makes sense? It is absolutely something that anyone can learn. I don't think there are, there, there are certain people who have, and I'll, I'll say uh, a natural healthy relationship with risk and experimentation is probably the, the, the personality factor that has the most to do with it. Um, and I would say also openness to new experience is a major factor and conscientiousness. So hmm. are you able to sit down, deliver on promises, do work on a consistent basis to deliver value, things of that nature? So I would say, you know, there, there are certain, certain aspects of personality that are helpful, but are not prerequisites or, or necessarily defining factors. Hmm. I think knowledge of business is a skill that anyone can pick up with sufficient exposure. Um, I would put myself into this category. So, so growing up, I grew up in a a small, very small uh, town in um, the Midwest of of the United States, Uh, population round about 200, you know, the proverbial one stoplight town. Uh, my exposure to business prior to college was very, very minimal. And so, you know, the, the, the corner store and, you know, shops on Main Street, the vast majority of the people that I grew up around in terms of adults working in business, um, you know, either, either worked for a small store or worked in like a light manufacturing sort of industry. Businesses were things that people or places people went in order to draw a paycheck. And that was about the extent of what I understood at mm-hmm. that time. But there was also the, if you wanted to make money, there are things that you can do to make money. Um, I, I spent a, a good bit of my uh, junior high and high school years mowing my neighbor's lawns. It's not a glamorous business. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was not a very profitable business. But if, if there were things that I wanted to do to get money to buy books or, or whatever, um, I could. And so that, that sense of agency of like, this is, this is a thing that people can choose to learn, choose to figure out, um, was really helpful. So when I got into both the corporate world and then starting my own businesses, treating business as a skill that can be learned by anyone over time is a very empowering way to think about it. Cause it, it doesn't matter who, you know, doesn't matter where you, where you come from. Um, doesn't matter what your prior experience has been. There's a certain set of things that you can understand about business that will make your life very much easier if you know them. 
So it's a good idea to learn those. Those are the things to learn first. And then business from there, after you have that core knowledge, is really just a matter of effort and experimentation and persistence. Mm. If you keep putting your effort and energy in that direction over a long enough period of time and you experiment and keep doing the things that work and stop doing the things that don't, you will absolutely get there in terms of building something that is profitable, sustaining, and worth your investment of time and energy. I like how you mentioned persistence there because it's like a trigger for me. Every time people mention persistence, I have my saying that I live by and I believe that the ultimate version of success and if you want to be successful, quote, in business or actually in life, you got to learn this mindset of persistence. You got to tell yourself every single day, I'm going to get up, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to be persistent at trying to achieve the things that I actually want to achieve. Now, if you look at persistence, there's good persistence and there's bad persistence. You can be persistent at all the bad things that aren't really working for your business, but you, you're so mm-hmm. stubborn to actually think that, hang on a minute, I'm right, everyone else is wrong. But if you're persistent at humility and just absolutely being open enough to take advice from people that actually know more in business than what you do, then you can grow, you can learn, you can improve your life. But if you're constantly guarding yourself or, or pushing away from, from the good, then you're never going to grow. Your business is going to remain like stagnant at best because you are. So I, I personally believe that if you actually want to move forward in your life, even if you face struggles, failures, because they are going to come, rejection, you, you name it, then having that mindset of, okay, today I'm going to get up, I'm going to continue pushing forward, I'm going to be persistent, I'm going to put into practice all the things that I have continued to do every single day up until this point, like whether it's reaching out, whether it's accounting, finances, all these things in business that are actually good for it, keeping it afloat, and just uh, practicing learning something new. So asking questions. So I think that's uh, like, if you want to be consistent at it, be persistent. (laughs) Absolutely. That's my philosophy. Yeah, I see so many people, particularly on the, the entrepreneurship side, people who decide to start a business and they give it a try for a good solid week. Mm. They say, well, you know, people aren't knocking down my door. This, I'm obviously not cut out for this. And that's, that's not how it works. It's never how it works. No. And if it's one thing that I've learned doing this podcast, if you want to see it as a business, is that most people, when they start a podcast, they sort of quit six months in because it's really, really hard work. Yeah. It's long hours. And if you're not in that mindset of why am I doing this? What's my vision? And actually actively working towards your vision, same thing in business, you know, like your values, your business values. Like if you're going against that, your business isn't going to grow. Like you're constantly fighting something that you don't really need to fight. So instead of going against the grain, go with the grain as best as you possibly can. You know, you've got disruptors too, but they've disrupted a certain part of an industry because someone told them that they can't do it. It's the same thing. Like if, if you get told, hey, you can't do something, well, so what? Go and show them that you can do it. 
and pro- pro- it's not proving to them. It's proving to yourself that you can do it. And watch, watch that business grow. I, I think I'm getting off a, on a tangent. I apologize, but um, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I think this, this is something that happens a lot with beginning entrepreneurs and it's, they have an idea for something they want to exist. And so they'll go full speed ahead, making that thing. And when it's done, they present it to the world mm. and nobody wants it. And so I think there's, and this is you know, kind of coming back to our, our finding the middle point conversation. Mm. There's, there's a middle point between having an idea, some value, some unique thing that you can bring to the world, and then also putting down your preconceptions and just listening for a while. Um, a lot of early stage entrepreneurship looks a lot like anthropology in the sense of just going out into the world keeping your eyes and your ears open and noticing what people are frustrated about, what, what, how they're, they're expending effort or time or energy that they don't need to. Um, hassles, things, things that just annoy people. Mm. All of those things are clues that can give you, uh, give you some insight into what would make a successful business. Mm. But you have to be willing to take a step back from what you think people want or what you think people are going to to benefit from and actually get to the point of listening long enough and taking it seriously to pick up those pieces of information that, that are out there in plain sight. You just have to look for them. Mm. Someone wise said to me, he's, he's a multimillionaire, highly successful in business. And he said to me, number one thing that you've got to do is figure out your why and then serve others. He said yep. the moment he said the moment that you focus on on yourself, then your business starts going down, starts declining. You start focusing on other people, how you can service them. Kind of like what Steve Jobs did with Apple. You know, like he ser- he found a need and he just served people and he changed their lives. Hopefully for the better. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, yeah. But you know, he's he connected the world, and he did that because he wanted to make a difference. He saw he saw that vision. Um. So anyway, move, moving steering the conversation a little bit towards your your second book, which I'm curious sure. about. The first twenty hours: How to Learn Anything Fast. Now. I'm a slow learner. Oh, sorry. I always like to say with certain things, I'm a fast learner, but with other things, I'm a very slow learner, like math. <laughs> uh-huh, totally. So, uh, can you share what are the, what are the secrets, the, the, this, these tips and tricks to actually learn things quickly? Yeah. Okay. This is a big topic. Um, yes. and, and something that I was very excited to dig into the research on. Um, so what, I, what I've noticed is that a lot of what is talked around in terms of, of skill focuses on the, when you get really good at it part, Mm. like what does it take to become a gold medalist at the Olympics or, you know, chess world champion or whatever. And the answer to that is a lot of practice over a very long period of time. I don't, don't think that part is necessarily a mystery. The, the, the thing that fascinates me, is that say there's something you want to learn how to do, 
maybe this is something for work. Maybe this is something for your personal life or for fun. Um, How do you go from knowing nothing, no experience, no knowledge, no skill whatsoever, to being pretty good, maybe not world-class, but pretty good in a, in a very short period of time. And so this, this became another one of my research projects, uh, which is, was digging into the, the literature and research on uh, skill acquisition and figuring out how can we do this well and how can we do it faster. Mm-hmm. The first thing that's really important to understand is that knowledge and skill are two completely different things. So knowledge is ideas in your head, having some conceptual understanding of what a topic is, how it works. So for example, the personal MBA is a book about business knowledge. It's helping upgrade the business software in your brain, for lack of a better analogy. So when you get to the practice of doing business, you have a a set, a a working set of knowledge to, to draw from that will help you make better decisions. That's the whole point. That is not business skill. Business skill comes about, or skill in anything for that matter, comes about as a result of practicing what you want to do in specific ways. So being able to perform a specific task in the world in a reliable, consistent, repeatable way. And skill in uh, skill is one of those areas that has a deep research literature that isn't really talked about very much. And it's, it's fascinating because what the, the research literature says is that the point of our most rapid improvement happens at the very beginning. Mm. So if you think about improvement in performance per unit time, that is concentrated at the beginning. You can go from nothing to being reasonably good in a very, very short concentrated period of time if you do it well, if you do it consistently. And so for me, the question became, okay, like, well, what does that, what does that look like? It's not years, it's not months. It's about 20 hours of focused practice. Um, and the, the valuable thing about this to know is that it, it's, it's universal and generalizable. So it doesn't matter what you're learning. Um, could be a physical or a motor skill, could be a cognitive skill. So say something like uh, programming or um, touch typing, things like that. Touch typing is kind of a cognitive motor skill combined, which is, which is, uh, is cool. Um, or like, so think like chess is the example of a mental skill, uh, purely, purely mental skill. So the really cool thing about this is there is a way to going about learning something that you want to learn how to do in a focused, efficient, effective way. And the end result of that is going from knowing absolutely nothing to being reasonably good in a short period of time. And the best part of that is that kind of similar, we were, we were talking earlier about businesses. People get frustrated way too early. Mm-hmm. They say, well, you know, I'm obviously not good at this. And then they, they put it aside or they quit their podcast in the first month because they don't have enough listeners, that kind of thing. People, this, this is a universal thing around skills, particularly adult learners, because adult learners are not used to feeling dumb, are not comfortable feeling like they're not performing well. It's very, very frustrating 
and adults, contrary to kids, you know, if you ever watch a kid on a skateboard, just like throw themselves at the thing over and over and over again, and they crash and fall and they laugh and they just get back up and do it over again. That's a very constructive response to learning a new skill. Um, but adults don't tend to approach it that way. We're like, uh, try to do something. It doesn't work out. It's like, man, just not good at this. Just don't have the talent. I, I should, I should wait, shouldn't waste my time. I should go do something that I'm, I'm better at doing. What's really interesting. I call this in the first 20 hours, I call this the frustration barrier. Mm-hmm. So for adult learners, the first few hours of practice are almost always just pure hell. Absolutely frustrating. Um, you, you want to give up very early because you have an idea in your head of what skill looks like. You know what you're supposed to be able to do. And the contrast between that and watching yourself do this thing for the first time is often very extreme. Mm. And so for adult learners, there's, there's this barrier of a, there's a certain amount of frustration that you are going to experience and that you have to get through in order to get to the point where you're performing reasonably well. And the reason I use reasonably well as a threshold is when you're performing reasonably well, that's when things start to be more fun. That's when things start to be more interesting because you see yourself doing this thing that you want to be able to do. And that's kind of cool. And you want to keep doing that and see how far you can push it. So that first 20-ish hour period is absolutely critical in terms of your ability to do this thing at all. But then once you're able to push through that frustration barrier, the rest of the improvement process becomes much easier. And so I focused the research in the first 20 hours about that critical early learning period. How do you push through the frustration barrier? How do you get as good as possible, as quickly as possible, so it goes from being frustrating into being fun and interesting? That is fascinating because I know for me and when like, cause we get frustrated a lot <laughs> and I like, I like this, um, this first 20 hours thing. It's, it's fascinating to me. What you on, was this something that you like conducted on yourself, like figured out, okay, it's 20 hours for me. So it must be 20 hours for everybody else. Or is it actual science behind it? It was a combination. So, so the research literature talks about something called the power law of practice, hmm. which talks about the, what, we, what I said earlier, the, the biggest improvement per unit time happens at the beginning. Um, so, so in terms of graph, let me see if I can do this reversed, kind of goes like this. If, if skill is, is the y-axis, it goes up really quickly, and then you kind of plateau off at, yep. at a certain level. And so when you, when you look at like chess grandmasters, they had that early improvement and then the plateau is like maybe several decades long, but they've just continued to inch up over a very long period of time. So the power law of practice is in that early period. It's the period where you go from here to here. And so what I wanted to do is that there was, there was a lot of, um, a lot of discussion around skill acquisition was focused around this idea that was, um, the research literature comes from um, Anders Ericsson, who is a, a, a psychology professor, popularized by Malcolm Gladwell 
um, in a way that wasn't necessarily true to the actual research literature behind it. Um, but it was one of those things that at the time everybody was talking about, 10,000 hours to become an expert, yada, yada, yada. Um, so the question for me was that, okay, let's, let's grant that as true. So if you put a lot of time and effort into something, can you become one of the best in the world at it? Yes, absolutely. Um, at that point, does things like um, genetics or talent play a big role? Yeah. Like if you're an Olympic sprinter, having your Achilles tendon be a little bit longer, like a millimeter longer might make a difference. But for people, the vast majority of the skill acquisition that people pursue on a daily basis is not becoming the best in the world at something. Mm. It's picking up something that they've never done before and trying to figure out how to do it. So the question for me, which there's not a whole lot of research literature on, is how long does that take? What level of investment can you expect to go from zero to something reasonable? And so, um, it, so that's how I found the power law of practice. Like this is a relationship that exists across skills. Doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You're always going to see this, this happen. And so that's when I, I started doing self-experimentation about mm. this. And I picked up a whole bunch of, of different skills and, uh, and put this to the test. And so what I found for me is that 20 hours, which is just roughly speaking, about 40 minutes a day for a month, is enough time to see astounding, dramatic improvement in pretty much anything that you're doing. Mm. I found, depending on the skill, the frustration barrier is often the most severe up until the four or five hour mark in terms of concentrated, deliberate practice. And then everything got easier from there. Mm. Um, so yeah, just there's, there's a certain amount of, it depends on what you're trying to do and it depends on how much practice you're, you're throwing at this in, in what period of time. But as a general rule of thumb, uh, there is nothing preventing you from choosing to learn or choosing to pick up a skill that matters to you and dramatically improving your ability in that particular area in about 20 hours. Mm. Practice makes what? Not perfect pro progression. Yes. Uh, practice makes improvement. Practice mm. always makes improvement. And practicing in a smart way, which is a lot of what the method in the book is about, mm. can help you get those improvements in a much shorter period of time. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I talk about very early in the book that's, that's really important is that deciding what you want to be able to do, it sounds like such common sense. Yeah. But when you actually look at how people go about the process of learning something new, they have this vague nebulous idea of what might be cool and very, very little, like, no, no criteria that they would be able to look at their actual performance and say, yes, I am doing this. I am performing at this level or not. And so, you know, just, just deciding what you want to be able to do, deconstructing the skill into smaller parts. So you don't have to practice the whole thing at once. You're practicing very small sections of the skill at a time. Mm -hmm. Doing a little bit of research. So we talked about earlier the, the distinction between knowledge and skill. Knowledge is not skill. 
but knowledge can help you practice in a more efficient way. It helps you know what to look at and what good performance looks like. Mm -hmm. Research is always is is also a little bit dangerous because there's a word for too much research. It's called procrastination because <laughs> research is not practice. Uh, you need to you need to get to the point where you are doing the thing. So the general rule for research is a question that I love. It's how quickly can you start making mistakes? Mm. How quickly can you, like, yes, pick up a book, watch a video, talk to somebody who has experience in this area, but do that for an hour or two and then jump into trying to do the thing you're trying to do. And then the, the rest of the method relies a lot on behavioral psychology. And so the first thing that you can do is remove barriers to practice. So all of the things that are keeping you from sitting down and spending some focused time and attention practicing the thing you want to be good at. Mm. And then pre-committing to 20 hours of focus practice. And the reason that pre-commitment is so important is because of the frustration barrier that we just talked about. If it's not, if this particular skill is not important or valuable enough for you to say, okay, I am going to invest 40 minutes a day on average for the next month. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably not important enough for you to focus on. No. The pre-commitment allows you to say, even if it's difficult, even if it's frustrating, even if I want to quit, even if it looks like it's not working, I'm going to practice for this amount of time minimum before I decide to change my strategy. Mm. If I get to the end of 20 hours and I'm still terrible, I have full permission to quit, but I am not going to quit until I get to that point. Mm. And what I found is that that alone, going into the process with that mindset and that strategy makes it much, much more likely that A, you're going to persist long enough to see results and you practice long enough to see substantial improvement. Mm. I love that, man. Like that's such, that's so good. You've written two books already. What made you decide to write a third book in the first place? So my book ideas come from things that enter my brain and I just can't let it go for whatever reason. So, so there's, they're usually projects that I want to exist or that I've been looking for in some way. And they just, they just don't seem to be there. So after a certain point, thinking about it for so long, like, all right, if, if this is going to exist, I need to be the person to, to make this. And so I was thinking a lot of, uh, at the time when I wrote my third book, How to Fight a Hydra, um, about a cluster of topics that are all interrelated. And, and those topics are ambition, uncertainty, risk, and fear of the unknown. Mm. And so... Um, Ambition seems to be self-explanatory, right? We all have things we, we aspire to achieve or want to do or things that would be really cool if they happened. A lot of times those things are intrinsically difficult. Like we, we know before, even before we get started that this, it's going to take a lot of work. The success of it is not guaranteed. And so there's a certain element of risk there. Like what if we try and it doesn't work? Um, there's a certain amount of uncertainty. We don't know what we don't know coming into this project. 
And there's fear of the unknown. Like mm. Maybe you've never done anything like this before. Maybe you don't exactly know what you're doing. Uh, mm. Maybe you need to get the support of people um, and you know that it, that's going to be a challenge going in. And I think one of the, the interesting things about life in general is that uncertainty and risk are intrinsic parts of the experience of being a human being. It's, it's part of the fabric of reality. It's not something you can hack. It's not something that you can um, ignore or work around. There are things that we can do to manage risk and manage uncertainty, but there's nothing we can do to get rid of it. And so thinking a lot about those topics and then the ambition and the fear of the unknown, those are psychological topics. That's, that's about our response to what it is we want and what the world outside is giving us in terms of feedback. And so I was thinking about this cluster of, of topics and trying to think, you know, my, my approach to writing a book is, is generally research-based. So go look at the literature, try to find something useful, and then communicate it in a format where it's clear and valuable and accessible to a, a reader who has not read the original research literature. What I found with How to Fight a Hydra is that writing a book about uncertainty and risk and fear of the unknown is a very straightforward way to write a book that nobody wants to read. Mm. because they're intrinsically uncomfortable topics. Mm. We want to feel like we're, we're going to be able to achieve the things we want to change, but, but really like really wrapping your mind around there are, there are elements of the world you don't control. There are things going into a project that you cannot anticipate. It really, it, it freaks people out. Mm. And so I started writing this book, my first draft, like reading through and working with my editors, like, this is, is not working. This is really not working. And so I, I still remember what I, where I was when I was, uh, when I had the idea, I was in my kitchen and I had just read, uh, Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. Mm. Excellent book, highly recommended, um, where he takes the idea of it's kind of a, a mix of procrastination and acrosia, like having a hard time getting yourself to do creative work. He personified that and he called it the resistance. Mm. And so in the book, like having this as, it's almost taking this concept and making it an entity, some outside of yourself. And I was thinking about that. And I, I started mulling over, like, what if we take this, this bundle of, stuff, this bundle of ideas. And instead of making it abstract concepts, what if, what if we make it an entity? And, uh, and I came up with the, the idea, the, the metaphor of a Hydra, the, mm. the classical Greek mythology yeah. monster with multiple heads. And Hydras have some interesting features. So if you're not careful, when you cut one of the Hydras heads off, two more grow in its place. It's a, it's a wonderful, very visceral metaphor for these scary, complex, oh my gosh, how do I even approach this thing um, as, as a, an organizing idea? And so, yeah, my third book, How to Fight a Hydra, became my first fiction book, which I never expected in a million years to write. Um, but it, it turned into this interesting allegorical story of instead of talking about 
here's what the research literature tells us about how to handle uncertainty and risk and fear of the unknown. This story has a protagonist. The protagonist wants to do something really difficult and is in the process of dealing with uncertainty, risk, and fear of the unknown. And you see the protagonist deal with those challenges in a skillful way. Mm. And so it, it became this, this super interesting way of approaching this very valuable, but very uncomfortable topic. Mm. I like that, man. So how do you actually fight a hydra if you cut off its head and then two more appear? So what's the, what's the, uh, I guess the secret to, to, I guess, overcoming or beating a hydra? Can you officially beat a hydra and kill it? Like in terms of the analogy of your fears and all your desires and this all pursuit of actually wanting something like your ambitions, is it actually possible to defeat the Hydra? Yes. Yeah. So the, the classical mythology answer is that you can't just cut off a Hydra's head. This goes, this goes all, all the way back to the, the Herculean myths. Mm-hmm. And so the answer is that you cut off the head, but that's not the, 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 fir- the only thing you do. You take a torch and you put it over the wound so you seal up where the, the head would grow back. And, and that is something that we see very often, you know, going back to our previous conversation about business, um, there's a step called consolidation. So this is an idea and I talk about in the personal MBA um, called the sustainable growth cycle, where we have any healthy person or healthy business goes through these cycles. And, and, it's, and the cycle is you have a growth step, right? You're, you're pushing towards the thing that you want. You're preparing to take that next step. There's a lot of energy that goes into growth. Then you have a a point where you are actively taking advantage of the opportunities you've created. And then there is a a consolidation step or a maintenance step. You you lock in the gains that you have created. You take a step back, you reevaluate. And then, and only then, once you've locked in those gains, you go back to the beginning and the growth cycle starts again. And so in the, in the Hydra uh, analogy, you, you prepare, you take advantage, you make some progress, and then you consolidate your progress. And then you retreat and recover and, and re- recoup some energy so you can go back and continue the cycle again. And so a lot of these very ambitious projects the primary attribute that determines success or failure, like, like we talked about the other day, mm-hmm. is persistence. Mm-hmm. It's deciding you, you're going to do something, it's valuable to you, and you're going to last as long as it takes to get the things done, even if there are setbacks, even if there are um, things that you didn't expect, environmental circumstances that you need to deal with. You know, going into those, you don't know which ones are going to show up, but you do know that some of them are going to show up. So there's a certain amount of, also going back to our conversation of first 20 hours, there's a pre-commitment that happens. This is something I want to do. I am going to commit to the process of getting this result. And then it becomes a matter of persistence, doing it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again, making some progress, consolidating uh, your results, and then doing it over and over again. That makes a lot of sense, especially the persistence part. <laughs> um, it's, it, it uh, works. 
A hundred percent it does. Like for me, I've seen it, like I've lived it. And I know how powerful persistence actually is, which is why I, I talk about it so often and I'm writing two books about it is because persistence is so important. Like it gets you to places you never thought was possible, but you have to have that mindset of, okay, in order for me to overcome this fear right now that I have, that I am, it can be anything, fear of not being good enough, fear of going into business. I know for me, it was a fear of actually uh, starting something and thinking I was going to fail at it. You know, mm-hmm. but failure is not a bad thing if you decide to look at it from a very different point of view. You've got to look at, first off, you've got to be persistent at looking at things from a very different point of view than what you were originally think in the first place. You've got to be yeah. persistent at working towards overcoming the fear every single day. It, like change is going to happen regardless of whether we want it to or not. Like it's all, it's going to be inevitable. Same with pain. Like I know with, I think, uh, I think your analogy is spot on the, the fighting of the Hydra. Like you feel like you're being surrounded by this massive evil and beast that you feel like you can't face up to it. Yeah. And I think uh, Hercules, he didn't give up, did he? As the legend goes, he found himself away. Hercules is the persistence. Why don't you become persistent in your life and see what's going to happen? Like guaranteed you will be able to beat, for the sake of a better analogy, the hydra in your life, whatever it is. So, yeah, a lot of people people forget that there was a point in the Hercules story where it looks like he's going to lose. Like he hadn't figured out the consolidation step. He got a little bit of help with that from a mentor. And so, yeah, when, when you're walking into a big, scary, complex project where you don't have everything figured out, there's, there's a certain amount of exploration and experimentation that has to happen. It's part of the process. You are not going to know everything you need to do in order to succeed. And when that experimentation doesn't, doesn't go well or doesn't go according to plan that can be very very frustrating oh yeah Um, but it's important to know that you are absolutely not alone in that everybody who does anything meaningful in life has the experience of being overwhelmed um feeling like it's not going to work experiencing serious setbacks or or costs all of that is completely normal Mm. and i think there's a lot of there's a lot of value in knowing and understanding, particularly when you're going through something like this, you're not alone. You're not the only one who has dealt with things like this. This is an intrinsic part of the process. It's necessary. If it were easy, A, it probably wouldn't be worth much, and B, other people would have done it before you were doing it. So the, the difficulty is a part of the opportunity. And just by Just by understanding that, I think it takes a lot of the pressure off or a lot of the feelings of like, is this, am I really cut out for this? Is this something that I really should be doing? Um, I I think, and this this is where getting into the the broader society and culture uh, perspective, there are a lot of messages that we get from, from all corners of society that say it should, it should work the first time. It should look easy. It should look like 
you know, you, you have everything under control, you know exactly what you're doing. It's very uncomfortable for, for right. people uh, to even admit to themselves, like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm not sure if any of this is going to work. And, and, and people treat that as a problem that they need to hide mm. instead of, no, I'm trying to do something difficult. I'm having difficulty. That's an expected part of the process. And if I just keep going, as long as the end result or what I expect to get out of it, as long as the end result is worth it, I just need to keep trying things until I find something that works. It's mm. good. What would you say is your biggest fear, Josh? My biggest fear. Um, I've been dealing with a lot of fear recently. And this this kind of this gets into to um, some some things that are going on in personal life. I've had I, I wrote about this on my site. I can send you a link to it. Um, I've had some pretty substantial health issues over the past mm. decade plus. And so t- talking about uh, writing how to fight a hydra in terms of metaphors for dealing with complex scary things that you're not sure that you're you're willing or you're able to overcome. Um, that one was mine and, and still is to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. And um, what's, what's interesting is this is not a project that I chose. It is a project that is an intrinsic part of life for me and that I need to keep, uh, to keep working on, to keep trying new things, to try to keep making things better. Um, so, so just, just for context, um, my, I have felt tired for the past 10 years and nobody knows why. And so a lot of the, the, the debugging process for myself is, is trying to alter parts of my life, alter diet, alter medication, alter supplements, alter things to, to just to not even to feel good, to, to get from rock bottom to, to like neutral and functioning. And so it's, it's been really interesting. Um, I mean, (laughs) talk about a project where you cut off one head and two more grow. Um, This is, it ended up being a really good metaphor for things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, Hydra was a book that ties up a lot of my previous research in in a way that's useful in in a different context but it also i wrote that book for me as as a way of kind of processing what's been happening over the past couple of years and trying to find trying to find the useful bits of of this very difficult experience and so that's a long way of saying that um that my fear for a long time has been this particular issue, whatever the root cause of it is, is something that there is not an answer to and that nothing that I will do helps mm. um, or can help or, or can fix can fix what's going on. And I think that um, I'm not there yet. There are still things that I can improve, but I've come a long, long way um, in doing trying to discover things that work and then also doing that in a way that lets me do all of the other things that I enjoy. So like, for example, two or three years ago, 
scheduling an advance time and date to sit here and talk with you mm. was within the bounds of probably not a good idea because my ability to forecast into the future, what's my body state going to be on this day at this time, mm. pretty low. Nowadays, it's actually pretty good. So uh, there, there has been a lot of improvement and unfortunately those, uh, those fears have, have not been realized. I can uh, relate to the health aspect quite a bit. Um, like if you were to hear, this is not to take away from, from your fear, but I think one of my biggest fears was one of those health issues would actually catch up to me and mm-hmm. end my life to the point where it's not necessarily for me, but it's for those people that are going to miss me when I leave. Yeah. Like my friends and family, like what, like all of a sudden Jay's gone. What are they going to think? Like, I know people have that resiliency to sort of move on um, in the moment, but for me, it's just about trying to take care of myself as best as I possibly can mm-hmm. now. And like, I've almost died three times. I'm and so sorry to hear that. No, no, man. It's, it's, I, I look at that and each and every time that it's almost happened, I'm thankful that I didn't because now I can share that with other people to help encourage them and say, I'm only here because number one, God saved me. Number two, I'm persistent as heck. <laughs> I don't, I don't give up. And I could have given up so many times. And I have this analogy, sink or swim. Yeah. And I ask people this all the time. And most often than not, people say, oh, I'd rather swim. Of course you'd rather swim. It's nice. No one rather no one likes to sink because sinking is that feeling of failing. It's a feeling of this pressure on top of you. It's that feeling of pain, anxiety, that kind of analogy, you know. And I always say to people that it is much better for you to sink first because then you get stronger in knowing how to swim. And whenever you go through a health battle or whatever it is, I always say never give up, never stop going towards, never stop sinking because in sinking you get stronger. So keep fighting it. Keep, I know you might be afraid and, and, anxious and you may not have the question the the answers to your questions but keep fighting the hydra keep and don't don't ever give up like hercules didn't know at first how to kill it but he kept going and eventually he got to that point where he was able to kill it (laughs) so your time is coming my friend i i have no doubt um don't and this is one of the things that I, I talk about in my, my book as well is the value of patience. You know, like we oftentimes want things to happen right now, especially mm-hmm. when we have pain. We want to get over that pain right now. But instead of focusing in on the good that that pain is actually building within us, we run from it. So with all my health issues, I spent four days blind with one of them. I couldn't see. And the pain was horrendous, you know, but in that moment I found this amazing inner peace. I found this amazing quiet despite the pain because I, I wanted to go there. 
And I, I don't know if you uh, believe in God or anything like that, Josh, but for me, I spent those four days, and this may sound crazy, but <laughs> I did. No, four sure. days with, with God right there beside me saying, so where are you going, Jay? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, where are you going? And I was like, it's just that, this dialogue back and forth. And I was wrestling, wrestling with my purpose, wrestling with who I was, wrestling with what I wanted. And it's amazing how health issues enable us to just get a new perspective on life. Um, so I don't know if, you, if you're able to share a little, bit, a little bit about, I guess, have you had tests done uh, and they still haven't been able to find what's wrong with you? Yeah, it's, it's a big mystery. Um, and the, every, all the signs point to it's a combination of issues that are interacting in unfortunate ways versus like one big, big thing. Um, which, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm going back to, to our, when we were talking about systems in the personal MBA, uh, complex systems don't get more complex generally than the human body. I mean, there, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And so, yeah, what's, what's been really interesting is I think I'm trying to remember, we talked about exploration and exploitation of what trying different things, if it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't um, stop doing it. In complex systems, that is a little bit more challenging because something that works in one area can put another system out of whack or cause side mm-hmm. effects or, you know, things that you don't, don't uh, understand or control. So um, it's been really interesting, you know, that all the tests or all of the common tests come back ne- negative. So we know you, certain things aren't wrong, but that doesn't mean that one of the other 5,000 things couldn't be a factor. Um, a, a medication or supplement that works in one area might cause issues in other ways. How do you get the good parts of, of whatever it is this thing's doing without provoking the unanticipated consequences? So it's, it's been, I mean, I've, I've, been, um, I've been researching and experimenting on myself, uh, guinea pig and of one for quite a while. Mm. And, and fortunately, it seems like we're getting to the point where things are more stable and more predictable. I think it's also interesting. I love that we're having this conversation so because I, I think in, in a lot of contexts, you know, public interview about both, like you have your audience. I, I have, you know, my readers, all of the stuff, it would be way easy to just like ignore, pretend this stuff isn't a factor, never happened, not relevant to the book, doesn't help promote things. Uh, but I think it's important for people to understand that no matter who you are or what you're doing, certain things are going to happen in your life that you didn't expect, you didn't plan for, you might wish never happened. But you still, like, that's a part of life. You still need to deal with it. It's, 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 a, it's a part of what it is to be a human being living a complete life. And so... Um, this is part of my story. Um, I had plans, you know, if you would have asked me 10 years ago about what I would be spending the vast majority of my time and energy on, none of this would be as, as part of that 10 year plan. And yet the time and energy that I've spent 
doing this debugging on myself, in the grand scheme of things, is the most productive, useful thing that I can do for myself and for all of the people that I help through my work. Mm. And, and, and same, same for you, right? Like, if health is an active concern, the best thing that you can do for yourself and others is, is to, to take care of you in whatever ways you need to be taken care of. And that's not a distraction. It's not um, something that you should be ashamed of or hide or whatever. It's just a fact of reality and, and something that is very constructive for everybody involved. Mm. I think also getting, trying to get to a place that at the end of the day, no matter what happens, everything is going to be okay. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter, you know, and that's what I've realized in, in life is that if I go tomorrow, I know that I've done everything that I can mm-hmm. today in the present moment because I'm not guaranteed of a tomorrow. I mean, just getting in the car and driving, like you, you just don't think, but you're always thankful. But I think also just looking at your, your life right now, what it is, what you actually have been able to do and accomplish, how many people you've been able to help, especially with your story, Josh. I mean, this is, this is great. I mean, this is the kind of things that I love talking about um, because there's so much value here. There's so much wisdom behind it. And I think that with your story and everything that you're going through, it's inspiring. It really is because I, I know what it's like to feel tired. I know there's quite a few people actually listen to this that might actually feel like they're tired too. Like they don't have a way to be untired and, and get that energy back. Yeah. You know? But there is always a way. You just got to work towards finding that way and going back to, I guess, trying to master it. You know, you, you are the master of your own choices and you got to oftentimes live with the consequences of, of those choices and those decisions. And I think the best thing I can share for this, Josh, and I, I want your advice on it as well, but I came up with a method that I call the CAP method. So okay. CAP. C stands for choice, A stands for acceptance, and P, guess what, stands for persistence. Persistence, yeah. Yes. So at the, whenever you can apply this to, I guess, if you're in a struggle, if you're in addictions, and mental, I applied it to mental health and, and depression and everything that I went through. But first off, you've got to understand that ultimately life is a, is a gift. It's free will. You have the choice to accept your reality for what it is right now, or you can choose to accept that you can be so much more than what you are right now. And in order to get to a place where you feel that you are happy, satisfied, fulfilled, you've got to be persistent each and every day. You've got to put on a cap, as it were, as the analogy is, on all the negative in your life and keep that cap as tight as possible by being persistently closing it. Just keep closing it as tight as you can every single day because 100% that cap is going to loosen. And the moment it loosens or the moment that cap is opened up again, you've allowed it to. That's your choice because you've stopped being persistent. So continue being persistent, my friend. And I am so thankful to hear that, you know, you are 
taking each day, you're becoming better. It's inspiring for me to hear. So thank you so much for sharing that, man. Yeah, totally. I think the other grand thing to take away from all of this, which which is helpful in a wide variety of circumstances, even if you are not struggling with health issues, um, there's a tendency for a lot of people to compare themselves and their experience to the to what other people seem to be experiencing. And those comparisons, if you think about them, you know, even for a little bit, they almost never hold up because other people have different lives, they have different values, different environments, different life circumstances. You can't really compare one human life to another because the, uh, there are so many different variables that any comparison just, just falls flat very quickly. And so it's, there's, there's a valuable mental check step here or a mental skill that I think is, is super valuable and very important, which is judging your success based on have you improved today versus where you were yesterday, a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. So making comparisons against yourself and trying to improve your daily experience in whatever dimensions you happen to care about. That is valuable and useful and will get you very, very far. The comparisons that will drive you crazy are the looking at somebody else's life and feeling bad because you have not, for whatever reason, done the thing that fill-in-the-blank other person has done. So what's really interesting um, from, from my perspective, business background, uh, interest in entrepreneurship, building businesses, all of those things, I have a lot of very close friends who have built fantastic businesses in that are very similar in, in some instances to what I planned to do 10 years ago. The not skillful way to think about that is, oh my gosh, look at what I've lost, right? All of my friends have been able to do this and, and feel, feel envy and anger and disappointment I don't envy people their business success. I envy them their health that allowed them or enabled them to do the things that were necessary in order to reach this goal. It is a very dangerous line of thinking and of emotion because the reality of the situation is in my context, in my environment, my body state, the things that I've needed to deal with on a day-to-day basis to get from 10 years ago to today, different to the point of non-applicability to all of those other people that, I, that I've been thinking about. So um, the much better way of thinking about it is, no, 10 years ago, I was in real rough shape. And every day since this issue has occurred, I've been working and doing everything under my power to resolve the issue and make sure it never comes back. And when I look at my current state today, my current capabilities today, the improvement has been very significant. It's been a major accomplishment. It's not how I planned to spend the past decade, but adjusting to this unfortunate series of circumstances that have occurred, there's been some really 
very real progress and, and deep success along the way in, in making progress on this thing. So yeah, the, the comparing yourself to yourself or your past self, um, I, there's, there's a, a wonderful little quirk uh, I picked up years ago, which is to think of yourself every year as a different version of yourself. So, you know, when, when a lot of these, um, the, this, the situation um, cropped up, it got really bad in like 2013, 2014. Josh 2014 and Josh 2020 are completely different people. And I think, you know, doing that little, you know, sub Josh 2020 uh, subscript on myself is a really kind of nice way of doing the, the, the mental comparison to the past versions of you. And, and really, you know, taking an honest look at, you know, is, is it looking like Josh 2021 is going to be in a better situation than Josh 2020? Yeah, that means I'm headed in the right direction. And so, but yeah, just dropping the comparisons with other people, focusing on how can you make the next version of you even better? That's, that's a very constructive mindset to have. Mm, absolutely, man. I, I love that takeaway. It's so important. Josh, my, my last two questions for you, these ones, um, I'll ask this one first. So this is my legacy question. So yeah. I usually ask this at the end of all my conversations because I feel like it, it's, it's a powerful question. Um, but you've been able to reach the age of 100 and your friends have put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done and asked me how they got it all. We'll just call it magic, but I just did. And okay. to you on your 100th birthday, what do you want that film to say in the show about your life? It's a really good question. I think that a large part of that for me is family. So that I had a wonderful relationship with my wife and with my kids and that they are happy, well-functioning, successful under whatever definition of successful is meaningful to them, people, and that I was an influence or a part of that for them. Um, and then I think in the, in the broader context, I, I wish for other people, and I, I think this is, this is a big part of the, the motivation. I, I wish for other people what I, what I wish and hope for myself, which is I want to understand the world. I want to make good decisions. I want to make things around me better. And I hope through my work in trying to understand the world and make things better and, and all of that, I hope that my, my work helps other people do that same thing for themselves in, in their context with their goals. And so, yeah, in, in, in terms of legacy, I don't know. Books are weird things. Like they, they get to places in the world that you would never expect into the hands of people that you've never met um, and put towards goals that you could never anticipate, which is part of their magic. Uh, I, I don't know how my work is going to affect other people, but I hope that other people are able to use it to understand the world a little bit better 
and to be a little bit more skillful in terms of how they go about their daily life, interacting with the people in their world and, and moving toward the accomplishment of whatever ends are meaningful to them. And I hope as a result, they are able to get to the end of their lives looking back and saying, that was a really good run. And I did it in a way that I'm proud of and that is, was important and meaningful and valuable to me and the people around me. If, if I'm able through my work to do that, then that is a, I, I can't imagine a much better way to go through a career. Wow. I don't even know how I'm going to end <laughs> with, with that response. Um, okay. We'll, we'll, I'll ask you a, a much uh, lighter hand note <laughs> question right. uh, because that was deep, man. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's sure. a power, powerful legacy to leave. Um, this is, okay. This is, a, this is a fun question. So what is the weirdest food combination you've ever tried? The weirdest food combination I've ever tried. Uh, I have made some absolutely terrible ice cream sundaes at various <laughs> points of, in my life. Um, I think at one point I put, I tried ketchup on vanilla ice cream just to see how what? that would go. Yeah, it was, I don't recommend it. I was, I was very young at the time in my defense. Uh, but yeah, like I, ice cream goes well with everything. So you might as well try ice, try everything on ice cream and see how it works. Um, yeah, there's, there have been some, um, some interesting, like more recently trying different combinations of tea and some of them work mm. out really well. And some of them really don't like, um, I did like, that peach flavored tea that if you mix it with green tea it doesn't really work like it sounds great but it's it's really kind of nasty uh yeah this you you can see this deep thread of experimentation of like let's throw a bunch of things together and see how it works um yes there there have been a, a lot of not so great combinations as a as a result of that that's how the best chefs are created in my opinion <laughs> yep my 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 daughter, she's uh, she's almost ten, and that's her new favorite thing. Like, let's just get out a bunch of things from the from the refrigerator and freezer and blend them all together and see how it goes. So it's it's nice to see this inclination being passed down and encouraged in the next yeah. generation. <laughs> I think my kids one day will be like, Dad, why are you why are you putting that on that? I'm like, don't mock it till you try it. <laughs> why would you not put that on that? Exactly. <laughs> Me, have you ever had uh, chips and ice cream as well? Uh, chips and ice cream are pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah, I guess it would depend on the depend on the chips. Like, there's a sweet potato chip that I really like that would go really well with ice cream. I've actually never tried sweet potato chips with ice cream. Funny enough, like I think I've always just gone for the the normal potato chip, like Macca's chips. Mm-hmm. Those ones, like with the Macca's soft serve, we call it Macca's McDonald's. So basically, okay, yeah. yeah, like we used, used to smash it all the time. But nowadays, you know, we've got more fancy, fancier tastes than just McDonald's. Uh, we, we go to like a Baskin and Robbins or a gelato place. And uh-huh. you're not, Josh. We get the um, some of my all-time favorite chips uh, from this place down the road from my house. 
So I bring back this gelato. I get some of those chips. I don't know what they do to it, but they just make it so good. Put it with this gelato and it could be any flavor of gelato and it's like heaven on earth. It's, huh. it's the best thing ever. Another quirky thing that I like doing as well is I have a massive sweet tooth, but this is one thing that I do that's really, really weird. I actually get these crackers and I, they're like quinoa crackers or just normal rice crackers, whatever, which one. And I put butter, peanut butter, cheese, and sometimes I'll put honey or I'll put ice cream on it as well. Okay. And strangely enough, it works. Huh. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. Like, I, I don't know, but it works. And oftentimes, like, as a, as a mini treat or snack, I'll, I'll have that. And, um, yeah, be quite satisfied. <laughs> yeah, my, my version of that is that, uh, so I live in, in northern Colorado, and there is a barbecue sauce company called Grumpy's, which is made relatively close to here. It's like a, a, an hour drive south in, in a town called Longmont. And so Grumpy's barbecue sauce goes with everything. Oh. I mean, you, you can't really combine it with something that it would not turn out delicious. And so, uh, so that's, that's the new family joke uh, <laughs> that I, I'll just eat. Grumpy's barbecue sauce. <laughs> you you live off Grumpy's. <laughs> oh, I love it. I wish they were public because I would buy stock in in Grumpy's and probably single handedly uh, raise raise their stock price just by. <laughs> <laughs> That's like me and donuts and cookies, man. Like I kid you not. There's two companies here in Sydney that whenever you're here, I'll take you to them and. They make the first company, they make the best donuts I've ever had in my life. And I'm a huge connoisseur of donuts. And when I found this place and I had them, I'm like, how in the world do you make these donuts, man? Like, what's the secret? You wouldn't tell me. Still hasn't told me. And okay. I'm still trying, to, still trying to get out of him today. Uh, but the second one is thick cookies. Now, you know, New York style, big, big star. Mm -hmm. He's t basically taken that concept and done it here in Sydney, Australia, and just made it better, in my opinion. He's just like enhanced the the richness, the flavors, the the ingredients as well. They're all premium ingredients. Like nothing, the flour is premium flour. It's like organic flour. It's it's all expensive products into one cookie. And even the chocolate, man. Like the chocolate's from Belgium. Like. You, wow. you, can't, you can't get too much better than Belgian chocolate, in my opinion. And since our family is from Germany, so we, we can we say that like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then the butter as well that they use, it's like there's only three places in the world that you should really get butter from, and one of them is New Zealand. So he gets mm -hmm. it from New Zealand. And when you actually try it, oh, man. Like the addiction is real. <laughs> I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for companies who decide to do something conventional, but then they take all of the quality knobs and they turn it all the way up to 11. I just, I love everything about that. When you come to Fort Collins, there's a company uh, called Foco Doco, which is the Fort Collins donut company. Oh, And 
they have a donut robot, a, a donut robot. What? That automates the process of making donuts and they will make them fresh in front of you as like to your specifications while you're at the window. It's very entertaining and they're, they're delicious. So when you come to Fort Collins, uh, we, we have a place to visit. I cannot wait, man. <laughs> that's that's a massive incentive to really just go like COVID, hurry up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Stopping me from getting my damn donuts from America. And <laughs> I'm obviously spending time with you, Josh, but yeah, I mean, far out. <laughs> Sounds good. Good we'll plan. On. It's been an absolute pleasure once again speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, just want to acknowledge you and, and say thank you very much for who you are and everything that you're doing. You're changing a lot of lives and, and thank you so much for, for changing mine um, today. Um, so I don't know if I asked where can people find you the last time, where can people connect with you and learn more about you? Yeah, the, the best place to go is uh, joshkaufman.net. So that's where you can find all of my latest research writing as well as links to all three books personal MBA, uh, first 20 hours and how to fantastic. I'll make sure that's all linked below. Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on the Storybox podcast. Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. I don't like this part because it means sadly we have come to an end of yet another incredible story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you'd like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on any podcast platform. It's that easy. If you did get something from our guest today, please share it around to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from hearing this powerful story. And before you go, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It will only take 30 seconds and it will go towards reaching more people. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one. Your support is greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the story box, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 